Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago with one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications. Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to t-funk.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Diamond God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. So welcome to this episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. With me today is Mr. Tom Lord Algae, a man that needs no introduction in our world. But in case you've been living under a rock, Tom is one of several siblings in the very musically inclined Lord Algae family. He's worked with basically every artist under the sun. And some examples include Oasis, Weezer, Blink-182, Pink, U2, Peter Gabriel, The Rolling Stones, Dave Matthews Band, and many, 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 many more. Three-time Grammy Award winner and accolades that would fill up all our time to talk about. So I'm going to stop talking about those. Tom is undoubtedly one of the pioneers of modern rock and pop mixing. Welcome to the URM podcast, Tom Lord Algae. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Greetings from beautiful, sunny Miami Beach, Florida. I used to live in Florida. Does the um, the climate th- there at all mess with your ability to mix? Because it certainly did mine. With all the distractions um, that South Beach has, that messes with my ability to mix. And the distractions being, one, the absolutely fantastic weather um, that we have here in South Florida. Uh, two, the absolutely beautiful women um, that come to visit or live here in South Florida. So yeah, I've I've I'm pretty good at uh, staying focused on the task at hand. Um, you know, obviously, as you can hear, maybe or maybe not in the background, um, the slight hum of air conditioning in my control room, which is a necessity um, here in South Florida. Um, but no, the hot weather. You know, again, the only distractions are really. Um, especially nowadays that I'm mixing at Spank Studios, which is uh, my personal studio now in my home. Uh, my control room has windows, and the only r- r- real I- I- issue is on a day like today when I'm looking out the window, and it is just a stunning day. And uh, sometimes I'd just rather be anywhere else but in the control room. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I have a job to do, and it is the best job in the world, and I've been very fortunate to be able to work with... Uh, you know, awesome artists helping them make their records and uh, making great sounding rock records. So speaking of that, is that the reason that you got into recording? Was it to help artists uh, basically fulfill their artistic dreams or was it for recording your own music? Why did you, why did you even 
start recording in the first place? To meet women. <laughs> Why didn't you play guitar? <laughs> exactly. Um, probably would have been the, a, a better move. Um, but I am not a musician, so that would answer the question why I didn't um, play guitar. But yeah, all joking aside, I'm the youngest of six kids, come from a musical family. Um, my father was in the jukebox business, so we always refer to we had the, 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 uh, the worst-sounding music in the world because nothing sounds worse than a jukebox. Um, around the house. So we always had music around the house. My mother is a, a jazz uh, piano player, jazz pianist, jazz singer, as well as a jazz educator. Um, and in my, my uh, teenage years or, or, or preteen years, uh, always grew up around musicians um, as mom would be rehearsing in the house. And, uh, you know, they would take a break and uh, these musicians would come down into the basement where uh, Chris, my brother Jeff, and myself would, would be uh, kind of sequestered. Um, and, and of course, they'd all come down and say, here, Tommy, try some of this, you know, and they'd hand me a, a, a joint. Um, <laughs> it was kind of my introduction to, to, to the kind of, sort of the musician's lifestyle. Um, and to be quite honest, when I, when I was a preteen, I had asthma and they found that just that little bit of, uh, of weed actually helped to clear it up, but believe it or not, um, that's the case. But yeah, always grew up around music. I, I would believe it now. I would believe it now. I wouldn't believe that back then uh, people believed that, but I would definitely believe it now. Yeah, it did. And, and again, you know, always surrounded with musicians and music, um, whether it be from uh, my mother and her trio of musicians or, uh, you know, my brother Chris or my brother Jeff. Um, Chris began to, in his teenage years, used to pilfer uh, mom's uh, recording equipment. Mom had a little four-track TIAC, a quarter-inch machine and a little mixer. And, uh, you know, when mom was either gigging or, or not rehearsing, you know, Chris kind of pilfered that, set himself up with a, you know, a little control room in the basement of whatever house we were living. And he was kind of screwing around. Chris was also a, a musician as well. He played guitar, he plays keyboards. He was, he's also an accomplished drummer. Uh, and my brother Jeff played bass. You know, so the two of them with their friends would be screwing around. And, and of course, you know, I failed to mention Wait, that. Was your Was your mom aware that, her stuff was getting pilfered and moved into uh, oh yeah into a control. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. She she was she was never very pleased about that. Um, Just did but, it anyways, though. Yeah, we. You know, I mean, look. Good. I'm blaming it all on Chris. <laughs> um, but there's, you know, again, there, there, you know, mom would, would be out. Mom was a working musician when I was growing up, so she at her her gigs. Um, aside from her touring in Japan, where she would do once a year for about you know. Uh, six to eight weeks. Aside from that, her gigs were mainly uh, in the city, you know, in the in the jazz clubs of New York City. So, um, you know, when she would leave for the gig, which would usually be about seven o'clock in the evening, that's kind of when all the shenanigans began. Uh, you know, again with Chris kind of pilfering the gear and, and uh, inviting some friends over, and and certainly there would have been. Um, an alcohol delivery involved. And yes, my mother is here. She's in the shower. We can sign for that alcohol. Um, 
<laughs> and, and, and again, one of the, the funnier things about, about those days was Chris and Jeff and their, their friends would be either recording or partying during the time uh, that mom was gigging. And of course, mom played in jazz clubs in New York City, big smoky jazz clubs. Um, you know, so when mom got home at three in the morning, she never knew, noticed the cloud of smoke that was lingering <laughs> in the house, you know, from, from all of our friends leaving probably 20 minutes prior to her arrival. Um, so it was pretty funny. But yeah, Chris kind of pilfered the gear. And uh, also during this period of time, um, we all kind of amassed a, a, you know, a, a reasonable um, stereo system, you know, with a, a turntable and a cassette player. And, you know, God, back then we had eight tracks. Uh, I remember having an eight track recorder and, uh, you know, we always would fight over, over the, you know, the records and who would get to use them. And, you know, of course I always tried to, you know, when, when Chris was down in the basement, I would, I would, steal his little, you know, sound craftsman, 10-band equalizer, hook it up to my sound system, kind of figure out how that worked, you know, and only took a couple of times of getting beating up, beaten up um, by Chris for doing that, that I finally kind of saved my money and uh, bought, <laughs> bought my own sound craftsman dual 10-band, which I actually still have, uh, and it still functions. I think I bought it when I was probably 13 years old. So it sounds like you kind of had no other choice but to get into what you got into sounds like it it was just an indoctrination basically it was kind of the natural progression um you know i mean music you know i think first and foremost i know i can speak truthfully for my brother jeff and my brother chris as well we all just really love music we we, we have a love a true love for music when we're not working you know when we get together we go out and see the bands that we enjoy to see we're big progressive rock fans um, you know, grew up, we listened to a lot of Genesis. And we're talking about the Peter Gabriel version of Genesis and even the Genesis up till about 1978 or 1979 when Steve Hackett um, was still in the band. Um, but we listened to a lot of that and we still go out and listen to that style of music. You know, uh, modern artists today would be an artist named Stephen Wilson from, from Great Britain. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, and, and, and happens to be a very great mixer in his own right. Um, but making really great progressive, you know, um, he hates when, when people classify his music, but making just really great challenge, challenging music. You know, and then, of course, there's also the slew of tribute bands um, that are really doing great things, like uh, a band called The Musical Box, which performs the early Genesis, uh, Peter Gabriel-era Genesis uh, shows, uh, Australian Pink Floyd Again, doing, you know, the, the Pink Floyd stuff. So we have a tendency to get together to see these, these bands, especially uh, when they're playing in the Northeast and near New Jersey, where our mother lives. Uh, you know, if Steve Hackett is playing or, or Stephen Wilson, you know, we all kind of use it as an excuse to one visit mother uh, and then go to shows. So it's, it's kind of like when we show up at mom's house, mom's always like, okay, what concerts are you going to? You know, what's kind of fascinating about what you're saying is that so many producers say that they never listen to music. Uh, you know, they get done working and it's the last thing they want to do. And the first thing you're talking about is how all you want to do is listen to music and go to concerts and still be involved. It's the love of music. It's the love for music. It's the love, I mean, and it's the love for live music in particular. Um, again, so with the, with the, with the tribute bands, 
you know, some of that early Genesis stuff is pretty darn challenging. Um, and it's really nice to see how these guys embrace it, don't improvise, play it note for note, um, and are able to perform it, you know, with almost, well, to be quite honest, we, we always joke that they perform it better than Genesis would have ever performed it because Genesis wrote it and they had the artistic license to change it, whereas uh, tribute bands generally, you know, pr uh, take pride in performing it note for note. Um, so, yeah, it's a, just a general love for music. Now, when I finish work, do I listen to music? No. Obviously, I've spent my whole day listening to music, so I like to wind down. Um, in the days when I lived in Los Angeles, I would li listen to talk radio in the car, um, but now that I obviously don't have a commute anymore, I wind down, I'll sit outside. I, I live on the water here, so I enjoy sitting in my backyard and kind of decompressing after a full day of spanking you know, speaking of compression. <laughs> What's your normal uh, length of time mixing these days? Uh, because I know, you know, when when you're first starting out, you 16 hours, 18 hours, 36 hours, it's all, it's all good. But as you grow up, um, you realize that that's, you start getting diminishing returns. And I know yeah. lots of people that used to work those hours and now kill it in four, five, six hours and they're good. Yeah, what happens is you got you got to know, you know, where your sweet spot is. And I mean, for me, you know, it's pretty much eight hours um, nowadays. After eight hours, I'm just thinking of nothing other than just getting the hell out of the studio. Um, you know, when I moved my studio from South Beach Studios in Miami Beach to my house here over at Spank Studios, I jokingly refer to my clients. Or, you know, I ask them what's their deadline you know, and I go, well, well if your deadline is really close, you're going to want to consider mixing with somebody else. Um, only because I kind of, I like to work at my own pace. You know, obviously now I don't have that kind of overhead that I did have at a South Beach studio. So I'm able to work the hours that I feel I'm most productive. You know, so, so a typical day for me here at Spank Studios, you know, Try to try to wake up by ten in the morning, enjoy an hour or so, you know, of private time with my coffee, you know, uh, sitting by the bay, you know, and then eventually, you know, around noon, I like to just get myself prepared, and uh, you know, head up to the studio by twelve, you know, so that I can finish up by eight o'clock. Because normally around the eight o'clock hour, all I'm thinking about, you know, is okay, what's for dinner? You know, what what are we going to eat? What what am I going to do? And especially if I have you know, visitors or clients in town, which I get quite often living in, in South Florida, you get a lot of visitors. But yeah, I mean, over, over the years, you got to know, you know, where your sweet spot is, where when you're chasing your tail and when enough is enough. And the great thing about that is in normal conditions, when I finish my day at eight o'clock, I end up with what I call an overnight mix. My overnight mix is kind of, you know, my mixed all balanced out um, where I feel it's sounding really good, and that's what I'll send out to my clients to get comments on. And then usually when I come in in the morning uh, on first listen, I'll know immediately uh, on first listen what needs to be addressed. And sometimes I'm like, oh, shit, what the hell was I thinking last hmm. night? So d do you also expect to get feedback from your clients by that point in time? Yeah, so when I send out the overnight mix, generally it go, comes with a little note for if somebody has, if it's the first time I've worked with somebody, that explains to them, you know, this is kind of where I've left it. You know, I'm ready for you to hear it. Um, please feel free to tear it apart and make whatever comments you feel necessary or whatever comments 
you know, you would like to be addressed. Because uh, again, the, the goal is now to come in in the morning, now that the, if, because if they're not with me, you know, to come in in the morning to have kind of their basis of comments, um, you know, which, which with any luck are small comments, you know, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes I may have taken it too far in a, a direction that they weren't looking for. So, but again, I want to be able to address those things so that the next version I send out, which would be called Update One, would have addressed their comments. And is that basically to keep it from going too far in a potentially bad direction? Uh, getting it, meaning getting them version one that night helps to prevent uh, from, you know, mixing three days on a song and then realizing it's a totally wrong direction. I guess it would help prevent that. Well, yeah, I mean, of course. Um, but, the, I mean, again, the, the reason I do it is, 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 again, look, time is your enemy sometimes, and you want you, you to you stay fresh on it, and laboring over it is not going to make it any better. Generally speaking, a good song is a good song is a good song. I've been very fortunate throughout my career to have had some great songs on my console, and all my job was there to, is, was to make them sound really good and exciting, you know, and bring out the key things in the songs uh, to make them even better. But yeah, I mean, the overnight mix is really there, you know, to show the artist, okay, here's where I'm leaving it. Now I need your comments, you know. Um, and again, nine times out of 10, it's, it's, it's something along the lines of like, you know, turn the guitar up here or, you know, can you turn the, the drum down here or, or maybe a little bit more effect on the, on the vocal or, you know, um, but again, normally I have a rough mix, you know, their last rough mix, which they're usually married to, uh, to <laughs> kind of reference, um, you know, so I'll reference off of that. And unlike my brother, you know, I listen, I, well, my brother does listen to the rough mix. My brother actually, my brother, Chris spends a lot of time on kind of trying to recreate their rough mix and just making it better. Um, I listen to the essence you know what is the essence of the rough mix what are they trying to get across what are the big things here and then you know i go for what i'm hearing in my head you know as and i as i'm listening to the rough mix again in my head i'm hearing oh i'd like this to sound like this or i want the drums to be a little bit more bombastic here or maybe if we did this effect here those type of of artistic creative decisions um but again so the overnight mix is is really there so that you know I am notorious sometimes for taking things too far, you know, for taking it out maybe just a touch too far in a direction that maybe they weren't looking for. So this is an opportunity, you know, while it's still super easy for me to kind of dial things back if I need to, you know, to be able to do that. But also, you know, by this point, the band is kind of chomping at the bit if they're not... They're ready. ready. Yeah, it's kind of chomping at the bit to hear what I'm, what I'm, what I'm doing. Um, and it's, the, it's their opportunity to hear that. So I want to key in on something you said a little bit earlier, uh, the topic of laboring over something, over a song, not making it any better, which I think takes wisdom. At what point in your career did you realize that there's a point where you get diminishing returns? It's well, a good question. I mean, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to think it was kind of immediate. One of the things I've always um, thought about you know, that that's helped me be a successful mixer was the fact that I'm not a musician. I don't play guitar. I don't play bass. I don't play keyboards, but I'm very knowledgeable in music. Have you ever played an instrument? You know, when I grew up, I kind of, I had piano lessons and, 
you know. But not, uh, so not really though. Not yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't sit down and sit down and play, you know, anything complicated. It was all very, very simple stuff. But you know, but I always had a very good knowledge, you know, of music, and I always considered myself to have kind of, you know, a listener's ear. Um, you know, I always kind of consider myself to have the audience this year, you know, so I'm, I'm mixing for that kid in, in uh, Idaho who's listening in headphones, you know, I kind of have, I always consider to have those type of ears, so, you know, I mix, you know, when I mix, I do whatever I need to do to get myself off for the song to get, give me a rise, you know, so that's kind of how I know when I'm getting to the point of being done, like, is the emotion coming across in this song? But yeah, I mean, it's, you learn pretty quick when you start to spin your wheels. And as an engineer and a producer in the, in the earlier part of my career, you're also the keeper of the session. So when there are other musicians around, you got to know when to kind of rein them in and say, hey, you know what? You know, this can wait. Let's come back to it tomorrow, you know, or let's take a break. Um, because yeah, some, sometimes, you know, you, you can burn out on it. So you got to walk away from it sometimes. This is really fascinating to me uh, because, you know, nowadays most engineers, mixers, producers, whatever, are musicians, just because the way that a lot of people get into this now is through making their own music and having a small interface and, you know, recording badly and then eventually getting a little better and then eventually meeting people that show them how to do it better, on and on and on. There's, yeah. But there's just a, a bunch of producers nowadays, good ones, started as musicians, and it's, it's actually really, really rare to meet a you know an engineer that is not a musician and what fascinates me about it is that as a, as a musician i have this frame of reference for which i always used to use to communicate with musicians when producing them uh because you know theory harmony all that stuff or just just the reference of how difficult something is on guitar or through the drum lessons i took for 6 months like it's just a big frame of reference. But it fascinates me, if you don't have that frame of reference, how you communicate with musicians in a language that they understand. I figure that having your brothers around and having growing up around musicians helped you develop uh, the skills to communicate with them. It has to be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, grew up around musicians, you know, and it was always kind of a competition, you know, with my brothers and myself, you know, kind of, it was always a competition with the, you know, as far as, uh, you know, making music or engineering or who could come up with the wackiest effect or, you know, that type of stuff. So there, there was always a, a, a little bit of that as well. But, you know, I always joke and say, if it's not there, I can't mute it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, meaning to, to sometimes, look, we all sometimes get songs that are just layered and layered and layered with parts. And sometimes they just didn't know when to stop um, with the overdubs. And uh, I always jokingly used to say, well, if, you, if, it's, if it wasn't there, I couldn't have muted it. You know, <laughs> so I, I dur during the years, I've never felt obligated to, to kind of just because it's all there. It doesn't mean it all has to be there. But yeah, being able to make decisions, musical decisions and not being a musician. Yeah, again, it's. It just comes, again, from a, a deeply rooted love and knowledge of music. You know, hope, hopefully what I like um, would translate to what the band likes. As, I mean, obviously you've been very successful, so those two things have to be aligned. But I think that actually that's engineering in its purest form because you really are just guided by your tastes. You're not guided by any, uh, I guess, preformed tendencies that would have 
resulted from playing an instrument. You know, when you play an instrument, you get into habits. These habits start to become your style. And so that style, you know, will then start to inhabit other things you do, like mixing decisions Correct. for artists. So, Correct. But if you don't have any of that, it's actually much more pure. It's strictly your taste. Correct. I've always felt that I'm making decisions that are best for the song um, as opposed to best for the guitar player. Um, you know, I have the big picture of the song. How is the song hitting me? Is the emotion of the song coming across? Is the song giving me goosebumps? You know, is it invoking the emotional response that it should, you know? And um, yeah, so over the years, you know, yeah, I used to get into it sometimes with artists. Um, but again, remember, as a mixing engineer, um, my strong suit was coming in at the last moment. So I haven't sat there through all the overdubs. I haven't gotten used or been married to to the rough mixes. Um, I'm not partial to this, you know, um, keyboard part that took you three days to write and then two days to record. Um, all I know is I put it up. Is it helping the song or is it distracting from the song? And yeah, that's worked, it's, you know, over the years, it's worked really well. Now, when you're talking about stuff like, you know, uh, Blink-182 or Sum 41, you know, that stuff, you know, didn't have that kind of, production that was more kind of band style production but on albums like bringing down the horse by the wallflowers there was a shit ton of artistic decisions that i needed to make you know when i was mixing that album um and again you know i just looked at it okay is this part selling the song you know one headlight is a great example i mean that was just wall-to-wall -wall guitar parts you know, from, from the beginning of the song to the end. And, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with eight tracks of meandering guitar through, through a song? Well, here's how you deal with it. The first thing you do is you, you, you mix the major parts. Here are the things that I can just turn on and, and are the major of elements of this song. So I mix the drums, the bass, the main keyboard part, and probably one or two of the main, you know, guitar rhythm parts. You know, got the vocals blended in and then just started adding in all these, you know, as I refer to the meandering guitar parts, but all these other elements that now started to create atmosphere. And it kind of worked out pretty good um, on that record. Um, but yeah, it would be in productions like that. I mean, nowadays, I don't see it as, as, as often as I did in the past. Um, but yeah, I would just make the decisions and, and, and again, you have to be able to, you know, you have to live and die by your, the decisions that you make as a mixer. It's part of being a mixer. You didn't start as a mixer though, did you? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Having knowledge of audio through my entire life, you know, I mean, again, my, I remember back to my, my preteens and teenage years um, of having, you know, sound systems and I had a little DJ setup. You know, now again, you know, I would have been, let's just say, 14 years old in 1976. You know, so I had two turntables and a little mixer and a little cassette player with a, you know, and I would do mixtapes. And, you know, so I knew about that, that type of stuff and I had a little equalizer, so I was always screwing around. Um, but to be quite honest, I mean, my first gig at 16, I was hired to do lighting you know, concert lighting, you know, in clubs, you know, when I say concert lighting, it just sounds so glamorous. Um, it was more in <laughs> crappy New Jersey and, and New York bars um, that I wasn't even old enough to get into. 
Um, but I started out as lighting, you know. Uh, one of them would be for, for, for one of my brother's bands, Chris's bands. Um, I, I started at lighting, and then, and then I got, you know, job offers from other bands, and I, I did that for quite some time. I always knew about audio. I was the one actually setting up the PA system when we would get to gigs. So I always knew about the audio. So you'd set up the PA, but someone else would run front of house, and you'd do lights. Yeah, well, because, you know, the front of house engineer, all he needed to do was set up his console, his outboard gear. You know, he would mix and then leave. So it, it was me and the two stage roadies that dealt with, you know, the lighting and the stage equipment and setting up the PA system. And then we would take care of everything else and pack it in the truck. Oh, and I also drove the truck. You know, and it was just a 20-foot straight job. So, I mean, again, we're talking about, you know, not a huge PA system um, and not a huge light show. We probably had maybe 20 or 40 cans of lights uh, that we carried, you know. Um, the worst part was the Hammond organ, uh, schlepping around a Hammond organ, especially in clubs that were upstairs. Uh, it was a freaking nightmare. Um, but yeah. is, that, is that why you decided to transition to the studio, is load-ins like that? No, so it was a fluke why, why I trans transitioned to the studio. So I'm doing lights, I'm at a gig, you know, front of house engineer uh, is sick, Band comes up to Brant. Band approaches me, and then uh, you know they say, "Look, you know, um, so and so can't do the mix tonight. We need you to do it." Because they knew I knew, you know, I knew how to operate all the gear. And my response to them was, "Well, can I do lights as well?" And they said, "No." And I was like, "Okay, yeah, I'll do sound, no problem." And to be quite honest, I I, I obviously did a good job because the next day I was the front of house engineer, and, and that's what I did from then on. Uh, from that point forward, um, I did front of house. And it wasn't until maybe two or three years later um, that I began to do work in a studio, again, based over another dispute. So I believe I'm going to just a long time ago, but it's around, I'm thinking it was probably New Year's going into 1984. New Year's Eve is a big, that's a big gig. Bands get usually get paid, you know, triple or quadruple uh, for the gig. Um, by this point in my front of house career, I had purchased and was leasing uh, my PA system to the band I was working with at the time. The band I was working with at the time, I, I approached them um, because it was New Year's Eve. I asked if I could get a little, you know, an increase in pay since they were getting paid more. Uh, I, I would like a little taste of the action. Um, they refused and I packed my gear up and left and never looked back. And a week later, um, I started working with my brother Chris at Unique Recording in New York. Now, having said that, you know, over a period of two or three years of me doing concert sound, Chris had been uh, egging me on, you know, hey, I want, you know, I could use your help. You know, I think you would do really well in the studio. Why don't you come, you know, and, and uh, help me out here? Uh, What's the age difference between you two? Chris is a... Uh, Two and a half years older than me. I'm the youngest. So pretty close, but I guess between 17 and 14 and a half, that is a big difference. But once you get a little older, there's not a huge difference. Yeah, once I turn about 16 or 17, it wasn't as big a deal anymore yeah. as it was, you know, when, say, I was 12 or 13, when, when, you know, Jeff and Chris, you know, they didn't want anything to do with me. Well, I mean, that is a, that is a major, major difference between 12 and 15. Yeah. So, I mean, Jeff is, is a, a year and a half older than me, and then Chris is two and a half years older than me. So, But the three of us are inseparable, uh, and we're in, we, we still are, but we were inseparable, you know, um, during those periods of when we entered into our professional life. Um, we, we, we were inseparable, and we still are. 
It's it's awesome. That really is awesome. It is. You know, and again, I walked into Unique Recording, and I was hired as an engineer, which really pissed off all the assistants. Did they feel like you were getting, you know, I guess the fast track because of your brother? Yeah, of course they did. Oh, well. (laughs) Too fucking bad. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, I, I mean, look. Definitely too fucking bad. Well, you know, Chris was beginning you know, to, to, to garnish a name for himself. And the studio was hoping that lightning would strike twice, you know, and obviously Chris vouched for me, you know. I mean, Chris threw me into the chair. I didn't, I didn't deserve to be there, but he threw me into the chair. And later in life, he told me, well, you know, I needed to see what you were made of. I needed to see that you had the ability to do this. I needed to see how you would react to it. And uh, it obviously worked out pretty well. Sink or swim, and you swam. I had to. <laughs> I didn't have a fucking choice, you know. But yeah, I mean, it was look, and it was a great, great, you know, time of recording. It was, you know, a lot of innovations happening. You know, I walked into a studio called Unique Recording in New York. Unique U- New York. I can't even say it once, but yeah, say Unique New York three times fast. Unique New York. <laughs> unique New York. Unique Unique. Uh, ah, there nope. you go. <laughs> I tried though. You did. I can't even get it out once. At that time, MIDI, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, was just coming out. And uh, Bobby Nathan, the studio owner, was well into it. And he would, I don't know if he purchased our work, deals out with all the manufacturers, but we had, you know, pretty much every keyboard that was coming out at the moment. You know, we were on the cusp of, of, of all that, you know, MIDI integration, you know, sequencing, God, the Dr. Click. I remember printing click tracks to tape, you know, to synchronize all these pieces of equipment that we could now operate off of MIDI. Um, so it was, a, it was a kind of a very exciting time. I mean, with the original emulator one, the kind of the first device to sample and then play it back on a keyboard. You know, so, I mean, of course, Chris and I, the first thing that, that we tried to do is, okay, let's see how many keyboards we can actually MIDI up. You know, and I think we meted up close to thirty of the studio keyboards off the, you know, <laughs> off of one, you know, controller or you know one key. There was no such thing as a controller at that time. We just made one of the keyboards of the master, you know, and literally had every keyboard in the studio, you know, making this god awful noise, um, but got it all to work, you know, and it was kind of a big deal. So how long did that take? Oh God, it took probably about an eight ball of cocaine. <laughs> I'm not I mean I just I just know that I different era but I used to program lights through MIDI back maybe 15 years ago um when that technology was kind of in its infancy and just programming an entire set was like two or three weeks of 19 20 hour days Oh no! This this was yeah this was a, this was a, just a a, a, a drug infused kind of craze. <laughs> As look, you know, it's kind of what we did in the eighties. You know, you know, there, there'd be the uh, the half inch tape flange, you know, sitting on the coffee cha- table with lines, you know, and a dollar bill, and 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 that's kind of how it was back then. So it would have been a, a drug infused binge of like. Either Chris or Jeff or myself to say, just going hey, for what it. What happens if we hook everything up? You know, and then it became, you know, of course, it was just like, <laughs> fuck yeah, let's try that. Let's see what, you know, because 
nobody oh, man, I can that. imagine that. We just wanted to see what, what, what would happen. So do you have any idea how much time went by? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we probably had the whole thing hooked up, you know, in five or six hours. Wow. You know, I mean, uh, the, the setting it up, I mean, because remember, we had all these keyboards. <laughs> that is a lot of coke. Yeah, we had all these keyboards. I mean, the hardest part was where do you put them, you know? The hardest part was, do we have enough audio cables? You know, because again, of course, we tried to set as many of them up in the control room as possible, you know, and, and when we ran out of room in the control room, we just, you know, they put the rest, just ran a cable in and, and, and put them into the, uh, uh, into the studio portion, you know, and then of course, do we have enough console inputs to get everything in? And then we did, you know, and we did. And again, you know, Chris came up, he, he was producing some band. I can't remember the name of the band, but he was producing some band and, uh, you know, he dialed in all these sounds with all these keyboards and, and, and did overdubs and, you know, we all were laughing our asses off. Um, but yeah, so Unique Recording was kind of a, a, a very technical, technically cutting edge place with, with, you know, with the keyboards and that type of stuff. It got a reputation of having these, you know, kind of New York hotshot engineers um, working there. So it was, you know, when artists wanted to do you know, keyboard overdubs or stuff like that, they would come up, or especially if artists were doing, you know, programming stuff. So again, in, in the 80s, a lot of the stuff was all program stuff. So we had all, you know, the drum machines and everything to sync them together. You know, um, this is well before, you know, MIDI time code. I forgot to say, it was a doctor click. You would, pr you would figure out, you know, you'd have to figure out the tempo you'd record it at, you know, and you would record a click track on tape and that ran all your synchronizers was the printed click track on the tape, you know. So you also had to make sure that you recorded like a bar or two of extra, you know, because it, it, you know, it wouldn't start on beat one, you know, because it had to figure out the tempo. Um, but yeah, so it all started with the, the doctor click, you know, and uh, I mean, I remember we used to trigger before the AMS DDL sampler, you know, we used to use the CV and gate input on the emulator one you know, to trigger snare sounds from an emulator that would show up like, you know, a, a bar late, you know, because it took so long to trigger them. I was about to ask if that was a problem. Well, no, we figured out the way to do it, you know, is that when you're mixing, hopefully you had an open track on the tape, you would take the snare doom, you would copy it to another track on tape, and then you would run that track off the sync head, um, which played early, and it played early enough that if you put a digital delay on it, you know, uh, so you would delay the signal that would be triggering the emulator snare drum, and then you would use your digital delay to hone in to time it so that the timing was correct. Um, and that's how we did it. Sounds like this time period was a huge explosion of technical ability and discovery. Was it also on a creative level in terms of the artistic side of making records? Well, yeah. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention. So, I mean, you know, when I started, we had, we had an MCI 500 series console and, and a 24-track tape machine. So in order to get these big sounds, we had to figure out ways to do it. And we would create what we would call a poor man's slave, you know, where we would take a stereo mix, bounce it to another 24-track machine, you know, on two channels, do these gang vocals, you know, 18 tracks of gang vocals, you know, mix that down to, uh, you know, you generally only did it in one chorus. Um, and then you mix that down 
to two track half inch and then literally fly it in by hand to your master tape you know those type of things and then and then then everything changed uh around probably late 84 early 85 um when unique bought their first uh ssl 4000 series console um and we also updated to be able to operate a 48 track analog you know using a synchronizer so once we get the ssl and the 48 track tape um then a whole nother um, creative door opened. Talk about that! <laughs> don't just don't just leave me hanging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah you, okay. So ex- yeah, what was behind that door? Well, well, first of all, untold hours of waiting for the tapes to synchronize. <laughs> oh God! But you dealt with it. Um, you dealt with it. But stuff. Oh, so no longer now did I need to. You know, did we need to make poor man slaves when we wanted to do gang vocals? Now we could make another slave, you know, and do the same type of thing, but have it synchronized and not, not be flying it in by ear or by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of some of the stuff that, that I was doing can be heard on Stevie Winwood's uh, Back in the High Life album, and a song in particular called Higher Love. Um, so we recorded Higher Love. I spent, uh, oh God, about seven or eight months recording that album. Um, at unique recording and uh, as we were approaching the you know the completion and getting ready to mix russ Tidelman, the producer uh we were working on higher love and russ, russ Tidelman, the producer was like okay this song is done the only thing we need is an introduction you know as an intro that you know the, the the way the song started at the moment was was kind of it wasn't really working and um back in those days what we would do when we were recording is we would stripe roughly six or seven minutes of tape with simpty and, and that's what we would record the song on that space of tape. So even if the song was four minutes or five minutes, generally you had music that went right to the end of the tape. Um, and usually when the song was over, as musicians do, they begin to fuck around. Um, screwing around, you know, messing around, you know, doodling. Um, you know how musicians are. Saying weird shit. <laughs> Saying weird shit. Yes, it's always those gems at the ends of the songs or songs that fade out. It's always the little gems that you hear at the end that, that you're not supposed to hear. But um, Higher Love or that whole Back in the High Life album, it started life as uh, all machine-based. Um, so it was a, a drum machine, sequenced bass, um, you know, but it was all machine-based to a click and... During the time as we were recording, we overdrubbed, overdubbed, we overdrubbed, we overdrugged. <laughs> no, all the above. I, I probably overdrugged, <laughs> um, but we overdubbed live drums on Higher Love. We, it was done a very interesting way. <clears throat> so John Robinson is the drummer in Higher Love. So the first, his first take, we recorded his hi hat, literally just the hi hat. And on his second take, we recorded just him playing bass drum and snare drum. And then on his third take, we recorded Tom Tom Fills and Symbols. Well, what year was this? This was in 1985. Okay. So none of the parts were, you know, the kick, the snare, the hi-hat, and the toms yeah. and cymbals were never all played as a performance. So on the final version of the song, the bulk of the song is a bass drum and snare drum from a machine. But they're John's samples. So in other words, I took John's bass drum sample and John's snare drum sample, triggered it off the machine, but it's the machine. And then when John did fills, I would just switch, you know, to the fill tracks, whether it was a snare fill or a tom-tom fill. So again, let's go back. He's doing his tom-toms and cymbal tracks. And as it gets to the end of the song, remember earlier in my story that... Uh, 
musicians just like to screw around. He started to play this kind of really cool, interesting timbali pattern where he took the took the snares, you know, he switched the snares off on the snare drum and just started sticking the 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 tom tom rims and and hitting the snare drum like a timbali. And it was this cool little pattern. So when Russ Teitelman, you know, mentioned we need an introduction to higher love, I, uh, immediately, for some reason, it popped in my head. Uh, let me see what happens if I do this. Um, so I actually offset the tapes, you know, which what I would do is you would park the tapes. I would literally play the tape and then hit stop on the tape machine on the beat that I wanted them to be synchronized at. And that was close enough a starting point where you would hit a button on the synchronizer that would calculate the offset of the two tapes. And then you would fine tune it to make it in time. And that's basically how I created the intro um, to Higher Love is I just flew this stereo track of toms and cymbals over to the front of the song, which is now what you hear as the song. And for those of you that are going to listen to the song, the first thing you hear, it's a signature sound now. I'm actually going to listen to it right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a signature sound. So you'll hear the, him screwing around. And as soon as you hear the first music note, you hear a music note that comes in with um, machine percussion. That yep. is the original starting point of the song. Okay. Okay, so Got everything it. before that I flew in. But again, it was, it was actually um, that where he played that part is actually at the very end of the song. Sounds completely seamless. Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess I did yeah. it right. <laughs> I, you, get, you get lucky once in a while. In, in addition to that just being a great story, so, there's something I want to talk about for everybody listening who uh, I've been telling you guys, <laughs> not you, but uh, the listeners, that that technique that you just described of recording one drum at a time has been happening uh, long before Pro Tools even existed. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, yeah, and so thank you for talking about that because um, I've had a lot of... We we featured this metal band, Lamb of God, recently um, with their producer, Machine, and they recorded their record like that with the drums one at a time. They can definitely play everything, but it was a it was a production decision. Yeah. Um for various reasons. Uh and a lot of people, I don't know if you know how metal fans are, but they can be they can be assholes. But um they were saying that it was, you know, uh an insult to the drummer or that these modern recording techniques are taking the soul out of music or you know, just stupid comments and Haters. and trying to get people to understand that this kind of stuff has been done since the 80s since the 70s of uh, reamping to this is not a new thing no. uh, the only difference is maybe now we can do it a little faster but engineers have been creative and have been trying to get the most out of their situation since they've been able to record correct it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there you know as long as exactly as long as the end result is, is, you know, the desired result, you know, it doesn't matter how you get there. I totally agree. You know, that was, look, I, re I remember when all, all that was going down now. So on that particular song, that's how that song re was recorded. Now, on a song, I believe, which is the next song in the album called um, Take It As It Comes, which is Mickey Curry playing drum set, um, that's a traditional drum recording, you know, and a song like Freedom Overspill with Steve Ferroni playing drums, that's a traditional drum recording. Now, on, on Steve Ferroni's um, performance, that was recorded by the late Jason Crisaro. 
at Power Station Studios. So Jason was the, started the project, and when the project moved over to Unique, pretty much that was the only song that had live drums on it, and the rest of the songs were pretty much all machine-based, and, and we did the next seven months of overdubs uh, and mixing, finishing the album off over at Unique Recording. So the late Jason Kassar and I share a uh, best-engineered uh, recording Grammy uh, for that album. That was your first big project, am I, or am I mistaken? The Steve Winwood. Um, it was. It was one of my first big projects. Um, it wasn't technically. It wasn't my first big project, um, but it was definitely the one that exploded. Was that a surprise? <laughs> it's always a surprise. <laughs> of course, it's a surprise. I mean, you never. First of all. I get asked a lot of times, did you know that song was going to be a hit? You don't think about that. You never think about that. It's bad luck. I've always considered that to be bad luck. Um, you, you, you're, that's not even in your mind. You're just trying to make a great song. Yeah, man. In my mind, it's not about, is this going to be a hit? It's about, is this great? Is it getting me off? Is it providing the emotion? You know, Is the song providing the emotion its intent? It reminds me of uh, an interview I was watching with Sean Connery, actually, where uh, he was talking about Dr. No. And he said that everyone around him likes to pretend that they knew it was going to be a hit, but everyone who was actually there making Dr. No knows that they had no idea, and they all thought it was going to fail, and they were just trying to make a cool movie. Uh, nobody actually knew that it was going to turn into this phenomenon. I think that's pretty much true for all projects. You never know. So again, I always treated throughout my, and even to this day, I treat every song that I mix as if it's a career-making song. Um, if they, they all demand that type of, of attention and importance. So, and, and I never think about, oh, this is going to be a, such a big hit. At the end of the day, I think about, you know, do I like this? Does it sound great? Do I really feel that I pulled, I squeezed every bit of energy out of the song? At the end of the day, that's kind of what I'm going at. But one other sidebar on, on, uh, on Winwood back in the High Life album, it also was the first album I ever recorded live drums in a studio on. So I was scared shitless. For real? The first? Yeah. Wow. Up until that time, the only drums I was using was coming out of a machine or, or, or a sample. Um, I'd never recorded live drums in a studio. Just another sink or swim moment. Oh, yeah. You know, and again, Chris, you know, I've, I really, you know, first of all, the whole project is, 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 I have Chris to thank for that project. He was actually hired to do that project. Um, and at that point in his career, he wanted to focus his energy more on mixing. Um, so, you know, he asked me if I would do the project and I said, yes, you know, so it was really his. So the, the plan was I would do the recording and that Chris would do the mixing and, uh, oops. <laughs> uh, yeah, how long did that last for? <laughs> oops. <laughs> um, I, I think I, you know, I don't know. You'd really have to ask Steve or, or Russ Tidelman, but, you know, along the way, they were really digging, you know, what I was doing. Chris instilled in me that every time you play the tape, it needs to sound like a mix. Every time. So I got really good at whipping up mixes, you know, before the first chorus, you know, or before the second verse, you know, of getting thing, things balanced and sounding really good immediately, you know, as to, as, you know, as one is to not waste time. And two, you know, the better you get at sounding um, and the better you get 
this audio sounding for this the for the individual parts, the better the musicians are going to play. As we were going through the recording, you know, I think Steve and Russ Teitelman, um, you know, were really enjoying or really liking digging, you know, what I brought to the table. Um, and there was no issue with Chris. You know, Chris and I always live by one rule. We don't care who mixes it as long as his last name is Lord Algae. That's a good rule. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but because you asked me if this, if this was my first big album and uh, my first hit, and this is another interesting story, it started, it started life and my introduction to this band started life on a Sunday morning, you know, with a 9 a.m. phone call from my brother Chris who said... Um, are you working today? And I said, no. He says, you are now. You have to go in and do the session for me. I got a band coming in from London and I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm like, well, why can't you do it? He's like, uh, I'm in jail. <laughs> um, anybody familiar with the Lord Algae family will, will know um, that the only time, um, the only issues Lord Algae's have with the law pertain to motor vehicles, um, generally speeding. He got nicked for something. Um, and was driving on a suspended license. And, you know, it was a Sunday, so they wouldn't let him go to the next day. He had to do this mix. The band was only in for a day. Um, so he just goes, just go and tell him you're me. I'm like, okay, no problem. You know, so I go, I go into the studio. I go, <laughs> you know, introduce myself as Chris. Uh, again, this is, I think, 1985. Um, you know, so, so again, Chris's name was, a I mean, his picture wasn't plastered on boxes of plugins because there were no plugins. You know, the only plug-in was when you plug the equipment into the freaking wall. Um, so, yeah, so I showed up at the studio. Hi, I'm Chris Lord Algae, blah, blah, blah. Did the mix. They love the mix. And um, at the end of the day, I kind of go, all right, I got to fess up to you guys. I'm really not Chris Lord Algae. My name is Bob Clear Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and we all got a good chuckle. But I told him the story. I says, yeah, my name is Tom. I'm his brother. And I go, we don't care who you are. Um, we love this mix. So it was, you know, it was a remix from something on, on one of their albums. A couple of months later. Did, did, wait, did you say Chris is in jail? Uh, yeah, I like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> oh hell yeah, awesome. I threw my brother right under the bus. You know, because that's what brothers do. You know, of course I shared my brother's misery with the band. And we, like I said, we went out and had a pint and uh, had a good old time. And, uh, you know, they, they left. They said, we don't, we don't care who you are. You know, we, we love what you did. We love your energy, you know, and we'll work with you again in the future. So a couple of months go by, I get a phone call from the band and they got hired uh, to write and, and, and do a song for, uh, for a movie. You know, so we're going, they're going to Los Angeles. They call me up and they say, hey, we'd like you to pr produce this with us as well as engineer and mix it. I'm like, okay, that would be freaking awesome. You know, of course, why, why wouldn't I want to do that? The only downside is it, it actually coincided over the first week of the Back in the High Life recording. So Chris covered the first week of the recording while I went out to Los Angeles to record this song with this band. Um, the band was called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark or OMD. The song was titled If You Leave. It was on a movie soundtrack called Pretty in Pink. And they still play it to this day. Uh, it's actually, I think, in a, like a Fidelity life insurance commercial now. But for years, it was just awesome to walk through the grocery store, <laughs> especially whoever I was dating at the time. You know, you walk through the grocery store and you hear this. It's definitely points. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but yeah, that, that's, again, that was the, 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 that was the story. You know, again, Chris gave me the Back in the High Life gig. And uh, yeah. 
you know, we, we again, as brothers, we always look out for each other. And, and, and again, it doesn't matter where, who, who mixes it as long as it's the Lord Algae. So speaking of mixing, at that point in time, had you already started transitioning into becoming primarily a mixer? After Back in the High Life, the success of Back in the High Life, more and more mixing jobs were coming my way. I was actually focusing my energies on being a producer. Um, but I found myself on all weekends, I would be mixing. So I was working nonstop. And again, if I wasn't producing on the weekends, I would be mixing some band. Um, and then over a period of time, and actually, you know, had reasonable success as a producer. Um, I produced with Steve Winwood the next album called Roll With It, um, which, I, which I got my second Grammy uh, for Best Engineered Recording. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, oh man, I got this producer shit down. I got this Grammy thing down. It was another 11 years before I won my third Grammy. So. I was about to say were those famous last words. <laughs> exactly. But remember, look, back in those days, you know, engineers um, were kind of left out of Grammy Awards. The only Grammy engineers could win up until I believe it was 1997 or 1998. The only Grammy an engineer could win was Best Engineered Recording. It didn't matter if you mixed the best the album of the year. Um, up until that point, if it won album of the year, the only one that got it was the artist and the producer. None of the engineers got it. Then the Grammys changed the rules. Um, and I think this was for the better because it also allowed my brother to win Grammys. Um, because, and, and that to me was very important because I felt he was far more deserving than I was. Um, Unfortunately, they changed the rules like 10 years too late because if they had changed it earlier, I would probably have like 10 or 15 Grammys. But that's okay. For me, I have the important Grammys that I've, and I've won it <laughs> twice. And that's Best Engineered <laughs> Recording. The third Grammy I got was for the mixing I did on Santana Supernatural um, and it won Album of the Year, which entitled me in 1999 to a Grammy. Having said all that, um, so yeah, so big... Thank you to my brother Chris, of course. And, and I say, with my, without my brother Chris, I would not have a career. Having said that, you know, it was a tough, I know it was a tough thing. It had to be very tough for my brother to swallow that, that a gig he gave to his little brother uh, was so successful. And, and his brother won a Grammy on it. Fast forward somewhere, in the, maybe in the early 2000s. I, I don't remember the exact year. I get hired to mix a band from Los Angeles. I'm living in Miami Beach. I've lived in Miami Beach for 20-something years. And I knew when I moved down here, there's going to be a handful of gigs I'm going to lose because the bands don't want to come down uh, to Miami Beach to work. Uh, but I get hired by a band. This is probably three or four months in advance of the mixing. That's how busy I am. Uh, you know, I'm booked that far in advance. So as we're getting closer to the dates, um, you know, when the mixing would commence, probably a week probably a week before the, the, uh, the mixing is going to commence, you know, I get a call from my manager. Um, you know, they want to mix the album in Los Angeles. Would you consider mixing the album in Los Angeles? And my response was, well, do they want my best mixes? And, and, and of course, she said, yeah, of course they want your best mixes. <laughs> um, and I said, well, we need to mix, you know, in Miami Beach at South Beach Studios. Um, well, the band can't do that. And I, says, I said, you know what? You know, see if Chris can do it, you know. Let, you know, see if Chris would be interested in doing it. Um, and of course, Chris was into it. You know, Chris mixed the album, and uh, he won his first Grammy on that album. And that album, <laughs> that album was see, good. it all works out. Yeah, and that album was Green Day, American Idiot. 
Yeah, that mix was ridiculous. Fucking killed it. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, that mix was ridiculous. He killed that. I couldn't have been happier. You know, for me, everything fell into, into place. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. So do you think during that time period, though, what, like, what was it, like 15 years or something like that, where between when you won your first Grammy and when he won his, uh, you said that it must have been a tough pill for him to swallow, but it sounds like your relationship was still great. If I've implied anything other than that, it would, it's you know, wrong. I mean, uh, Chris and I, we're brothers. You know, we look out for each other. You know, we don't necessarily talk shop, you know, but... Like, we love hanging out with each other. We love traveling with each other. You know, over the past couple of years or three or four years, you know, I, I've kind of lived like a hermit down here in Miami Beach. Like, when I leave work, I like to leave work, you know, but I've always missed hanging with my brother. And over the past four or five years, you know, now I'm out to the trade shows with him, hawking his goods, you know, and, uh, you know, he kind of got me involved with the mix with the master stuff. And, uh, you know, I enjoy the hang you know, I love hanging out with my brother. You know, we spend a lot of time together, and I, I just love it. I, lo I love it. There, we, there's never, ever in, in, in our entire life been a moment that we didn't just, you know, that there was never that, that kind of jealousy. Again, it was always, as long as one of us is mixing it, doesn't, doesn't matter. That's so great. You don't always hear stories like that. You know, but, but let's just call it what it is, you know. Chris has yet to win a Best Engineered Recording Grammy. I've won it twice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the next thing we're going to get him is, you know, uh, he, he's got to get a Best Engineered Recording Grammy because he truly deserves it and earns it. But look, I also benefit from the Lord Algae brand that he 
as created, you know. So, you know, I'm very thankful for that. And, uh, and yeah, you know. Uh, have you had no interest or have you had just, is that just his thing being more, I don't know, being more into that side of things? Is that just, is that not something you're interested in or is it something you're interested in, but just haven't gotten into as much? Like the, the products and all that. It's one of those things. I think that Chris's technical knowledge has always been far outweighs mine. You know, I only know, I turn this, it does this. You know, um, Chris has a much better technical knowledge of how all this shit works. Um, as opposed to me, my mixing style is based more on emotion. You know, what's the emotion coming across and how can I make it just sound fucking killer? How can I make it sound better than Chris's mix? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he really, you know, he saw the writing on the wall, you know, with the plugins and jumped in with both feet. You know, he truly lives, you know, the music life. You know, I, I mean, look, I do as well, but there was, there was quite a bit of time, you know, and, and during the years when I was married, I'm no longer married, ladies. There are no ladies listening to this show. <laughs> I was about to say, this yeah, is the wrong no, audience. <laughs> there are no ladies listening to this show, but there, look, there, there are, because I know some very talented... No, no there, there are, just not that many. Engineers, yeah. But, um, you know, especially during the times I was married, I am one of the reasons I moved to Miami Beach is when I left the studio, I kind of wanted to leave that life and just have a regular life you know but chris is like he's all in every waking moment is about gear every waking moment is about you know equipment and all that stuff so you know he's put a lot of work um into doing what he's doing with the plugins and creating a brand and and again i benefit from it and uh you know i i love going and doing trade shows with him and you know, I, I, we just we just have a blast, you know, because again, we, we when there's two of us, it's just, yeah, it's on stun. We're both on stun. So yeah, it's good fun. So let's talk about mixing a little bit. I'm just curious, are you still using the SSL and Pro Tools for your mixes? Sitting in front of it right now. Yeah, I have a, a, an SSL uh, it's built in 1993, July 1993. It's SSL 4000 series. Uh, it's a G plus 4000 G plus. Uh, it has the moving fader automation, which is called Ultimation, and uh, it's a gem. It's a gem. Um, South Beach Studios bought this from Chung King Studios in New York City. They purchased it from SSL. They had it for three years, and then South Beach Studios bought it. When South Beach Studios went out of business, I I took it. I bought it from South Beach Studios, and. Uh, we completely disassembled the console, cleaned everything up, got it all, you know, the, the console's always run. Um, but, you know, in order to get it into my room, I had to disassemble it. So uh, it's all been, you know, kind of brought back to like new. Um, it's now wrapped in a very, very sexy red bolster. Um, and uh, it's just awesome. And I've mixed on this console for 20 years, this exact console. So for, for the bulk of the time I was at South Beach Studios, it was this console, and, and uh, I'm very happy to have it. So, yeah, this is the Blink-182 console. This is the Sum 41 console. Uh, all that stuff uh, was mixed on this console. Wow. And what role does it still play? I mean, or what role would plugins play, I guess, would be the better question. 
Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when I saw that Pro Tools wasn't going away, which probably would have been, you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, when I saw the potential in the system, I really focused my energies on becoming proficient in using Pro Tools, um, fearing the day might come when I don't have an SSL to work on. Um, so I really focused my energies on getting to know Pro Tools, getting to know the plugins, you know, uh, just becoming, having it become second nature. So the way that I've, I've, um, I'm able to refer to it now is back in the day when we were recording with all analog equipment, even if I was using, you know, my 3348 digital tape machine, um, and, and my digital tape machine, my 3348 was purchased out of, I purchased it out of convenience because I did not want to have to lock up two analog tapes, two 24 tracks for anybody that's done that. They can understand how, what a fucking pain in the ass it is, especially when you're mixing. It adds so much time to the whole equation. So it was worth the investment to transfer, you know, to buy these tape machines, um, they're, um, it's an amazing tape machine and I would transfer you know, the projects over to my Sony 3348 you know, and leave their master tapes you know, intact, untouched and then I would mix off of the Sony so I didn't have to lock up tape machines um, but again, so back in the days of analog mixing, you know, we really only had about 20 colors, you know, and when I say colors I mean, you know, different pieces of gear you know, you had the 1176 LA-3A, LA-2A, DBX-160, you know, a handful of other compressors. You had some PCM-42s, SD-3000s, you know, delays, you know. And then you had, like, like your 4DL, you know, 224. Back in the days of analog recording, we only had 20 or 25 different colors, you know. And different colors, I would mean by the compressors that we had, the reverbs that we had. Um, and then with Pro Tools, all of a sudden now we have three and 400 and 500 different colors. You know, look, let's call a spade a spade. You know, they sound, the emulations sound similar to the originals. Um, there's no doubt about it. But none of them sound exactly the same. The great thing about the plugins is they're instantly recalled and they don't break. So that's always been my thing with, with when I was mixing analog is if I had to recall a mix, you know, there's so many variables involved with patch chords and this, that, and the other thing that... When I recalled the mix, the little subtleties disappeared. And, and that was pretty much down to like, unless you numbered every patch chord, you know what I mean, and used the exact same patch chord, you know, obviously it's not going to be the same because each patch chord might have different resistance. But with the plugins, I found that they come back exactly the same. So what the plugins did is opened up this whole new creative uh, window um, for me. Um, so to be quite honest, I mean, I'm sitting in my control room with an analog console and racks of analog gear. And, you know, aside from on my stereo bus, I'm really not using my analog gear that much. Uh, I'm using plugins. But where I feel I benefit from still using my SSL is my audio comes into my console as if it was an old school multi-track. So I've always referred to Pro Tools as, as a multi-track on steroids. So... I'm doing all of my EQ and compressing within the box. But remember, it's not coming out of the box. So in other words, it's not just coming out of master fader in the box. It's coming out 56 or 64 channels onto my console. Mm -hmm. So one channel is the bass drum, which would be the bass drum in and out mic. 
One channel would be the snare drum, which would be the snare top and bottom mic. Two channels would be the left and right tom-toms, you know, no matter how many tom-toms there are. Two channels are going to be the cymbals. So again, the drum set's going to be made up of roughly 16 channels on my console. You know, you have your bass guitar and then all your guitars and then your vocals and so forth and so on. So again, all this audio is coming into my console just like it did in the old days, except it's coming from Pro Tools. So it's one thing when I see guys come in and they run their stereo mix out of two faders and the SSL thinking they're going to get this great SSL sound. No, that's not how you get it. How you get it is by bringing it in via, like as if it was a multi-track. So having it come in on 40 or 60 different channels, um, that does it. So, and, and again, you're hitting the sweet spot level-wise and you're using the wonderful analog summing that the SSL has. And then depending on you know, how I'm feeling that day or what my flavor is that day will depend on whether I'm using, you know, the, the console quad compressor or whether I'm using the Focusrite Red 3 or the Tube Tech or, you know, whatever analog outboard compressor or the 33609, whatever I, you know, whatever that mix calls for. And then I use the console equalization equalization as kind of like mastering EQ. So sometimes as I'm nearing the end of my mix, it's easier just to kind of like, ooh, let's just add a little bit more mid-range to the guitars here, and I'll do that on the console. Um, sometimes I find that just to be a bit easier. But again, most of the automation moves, at least with the drums are, as concerned, are all done on the console, because you have to remember, at least with the drums, I'm hitting, the drums are hitting the console at the sweet spot. So which generally means that if I do automation, at least upper level automation on the drums, I'm going to have overs. Um, so therefore, I, I'll do a couple of passes of automation on the console, generally to do drums and, you know, any other obvious uh, moves that I hear. But yeah, but the bulk of the work is done in Pro Tools. And again, I, I, I've done it in the past where, where, you know, I've taken the mix after the fact, I summed it into a master fader, you know, re-kind re of done the, the drum moves or whatever moves, you know, and it sounds pretty similar. You know, there's not a night and day difference. So one of the things that I teach in my mixing seminars or when I talk about mixing is it's not the gear dummy, it's your ear, you know. 100%. So I get it all the time. Hey, man, you, you get an SSL. That's how you get those mixes. No, man, I get the ear. I mean, I have heard lots of terrible mixes on an SSL. It, yeah. yeah, the SSL is not doing it for you. Yeah, well, obviously, I didn't mix those songs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you brought something up that uh, I actually haven't heard anybody say, but that I just wanted to highlight. Whenever people talk about the advantages and disadvantages of one versus the other, which is kind of a tired argument either way, um, there you did say something that I really haven't heard before. Everybody talks about the workflow and the recallability because of time. And that's great. I mean, that's true. The recallability is great on, you know, on a DAW. The one thing that you said that I have not heard, which makes perfect sense, is that the recalls never sound quite the same because even down to micro details like resistance in a patch cable, because nothing is exactly the same in the analog world. Everything's just a little different. Those little differences Correct. add up to a different result when you plug it all back up. Exactly. So, you know, analog mix I did, you know, let's just say uh, Fat Lips on 41. You know, there's a totally analog mix. You know, there I, I didn't have a Pro Tools rig back then. You know, so that mix probably had 
two or 300 patch cords in the patch bay, you know, and they're there for numerous reasons. One, you know, to move the channels to where I want them to live on the console, you know, two, you know, compression, equalization, outboard compression, outboard equalization, you know, whatever not being used by, you know, any stuff that's being used, you know, vocal compression, you know, so yeah, it's, 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 it's not just a couple of patch cords, you know, it's a multitude of patch cords. And yeah, it's, you know, I've always said that you lose the subtleties. It took me, I'm going to honestly say it took a decade, you know, for me to get to, you know, it first started by by just using Pro Tools as a tape machine, no plugins. Then I would put a couple of plugins in, you know, let me try this, you know. And that, you know, over probably a decade, um, you know, pro- probably around 2000 and, yeah, I don't know, 2008 or 2009, you know, I found myself just, just using plugins, you know, but still, again, still bringing it into the SSL because I feel why not use the SSL for its really strong suit? And, and that's the, you know, if you bring it in as if it was a multi-track, you know, um, summing it through the SSL and again, through these great analog compressors I have, you know, that's really the strong suit. And I always felt that that's the weak point or one of the weaker points in Pro Tools. Now, that was one of the weaker points. It's obviously gotten a lot better and the caliber of modern engineers has gotten a lot better to create again, this kind of really cool sound, you know. And now I go, anybody that has the balls to come up to me and say, you used to mix with a lot of compression, is, I'm going to smack in the face because the <laughs> amount of compression that modern engineers are using is ludicrous. And sometimes it sounds really good, and sometimes they miss the mark. You know, what I find, again, with a lot of modern stuff that I'm getting, you know, because I like them to send the sessions to me as last they had them. Um, but sometimes they're overbaked. So you, the the production session? Well, yeah. Like, not prepped for mixing, so just send it straight from the producer? How are you going to prep it for mixing? What are you going to do? Take all the plugins off? Well, sometimes they pre-prep it, you know, sometimes. I, I've, I've heard it. Here's what I want. I want the session of your last rough mix. Okay. That's what I want. All plugins in it. Whatever rough mix the band is listening to, whatever version got approved by the band, that's what I want. I want it with all the plugins, and then I want to make the decision about what I'm going to use or how I'm going to do it. Because I used to want it where they took all the plugins off. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I was spending my time chasing their you know their rough mix so now i want i want it where their last rough mix was you know so again it's you know a lot of times you know i'll, I'll be pulling stuff off the drums but you know a lot of times there's a, a lot of really important stuff in there that, you know in these days of non-committal audio of engineers recording documents and then using plugins to create the sound you know, it's, you got to have it, you know. Uh, and, and again, it's like when, I, when they used to send me the sessions without the plugins and they go, well, why does it sound so different? I'm like, <laughs> why know, do you well, think it does? Why didn't you fucking print this guitar going through X, Y, and Z, which made it sound fucking amazing? And there you have it. <laughs> you know, why it's fascinating that you're saying this is because part of how a lot of people prep for mix is they don't, a lot of people don't want to, I guess, inconvenience the person who's going to mix by sending them 
a disorganized uh, production session, <laughs> but pr- you know, production session that only the producer understands. Like you know, that's your fucking joke. It's my mess. I know my it's mess. Fucking, that's, that's yeah. Well, it's called sabotage. You know, first of all, the shit's written in hieroglyphics. You know what I mean? <laughs> really, I don't need to know that it's fucking SG. 1A, you know, 414, 57.01 dupe. <laughs> you know what I mean? I need to know it's the chorus guitar. So that, so that's what I'm, there, so some pre-prepping could be good. <laughs> like, uh, at least making sure that the titles make sense. Look, you know, if you're too lazy to take the dot dupe out, <laughs> just leave. <laughs> okay, turn off the podcast now, Okay. Just, just turn it off. Oh, uh, man. Okay, because this is not a dot dupe <laughs> podcast. This is the original. What about Audio 48? Oh, Chris always taught me. He taught me early on. If you don't have time to do it right the first time, you're not going to have time to redo it. You know, and that comes down to notation and everything involved. We don't need to know, you know, look, there's a comments page. You can, you know, if you if you if you really feel the need to write a Bible about each song, I mean about each <laughs> microphone and each instrument, put it in the comments. Otherwise, it's chorus guitar, you know, chorus guitar one, or or you know, label it however you you, you would. And you know, once you've gotten to like when you're done with your drum edits, please take out the dot twelve. <laughs> You know, which showed me that you had, a, you know, all the all the different duplications you had to make of it. God, this is, give, this is giving me anxiety. Just so many bad memories of. Uh... Well, it's look. We only have so much real estate to look at on our screens. You know what I mean? So I'm really anal about this stuff. You know, in order for you to be able, you have you have to set yourself up for success. If you can't navigate your session, you can't succeed in mixing it. Hence, why they're handing the mix to me, you know, or to or to or to Chris, you know, or to whoever. But it's like when I was recording, Chris told me he goes, "Just think about it. I want you to record this as if Bob Clear Mountain was going to mix it." That's exactly what I was about to say, and, and that and that still rings. I still hear that. So when my clients get sessions from me, you know what I mean? There's no question about what everything is. It's all labeled correctly. It's all laid out really nice. There's no like, what the hell is this? You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's called professional courtesy. <laughs> Produce as though someone you respect is going to mix it. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I've, look, I've called cats up. I've called engineers up. And it was actually, and <laughs> I haven't done it in a while, but I did do it like two months ago, you know, where I got, you know, there's this new modern trend, stereo mono. Yeah. Everything comes in on stereo tracks and it's technically mono. Do you know that when you do that to me, first of all, there's a button in logic that you hit that stops it from doing that. Secondly, when you do that, you're just giving me the finger and I'm going to send the session back to you to fix it. Because for me, if it's a stereo track, I mean, aside from the obvious bass drum or snare drum, which come in in stereo, a lot of times I feel obligated to have to listen to the whole fucking thing to make sure there's not one part that it becomes stereo. It's a huge pain in the ass, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is why I tell people to prep their sessions properly and why I really do think that it's... If you think about it while you're recording and while you're working, 
and you set your rig up. Look, I know what it's like to be in the trenches, okay? I know what it's like, and I know how it can get away from you really quick, but that's how you lose the gig. Part of the gig is, is maintaining a clean session, managing the session, and remember, if you have a hard time navigating it, just think of the next guy. You know what I mean? So with a little bit of work and a little bit of you know, thinking about it but while you're doing it, it can be really easy to do you know, and really easy to set up. You know, nowadays, the CPU power, you're able to run so many plugins. You know, there's no reason you should be sharing effects. You know, like in other words, all the parts should have their own effects. You shouldn't just have one set of reverbs that everything's going to. Again, at least for me, sometimes I'm running 10 or 15 different reverbs, you know, because again, my lead vocal would have one. And then on my console, my background vocals come up as a stereo track. So they need to have their own set of reverbs. You know, um, again, that's just how I do it, which makes it very easy if I need to bounce out stems because nothing is being shared. So, so this way I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I mean, I get stem tracks all the time you know, where, where you get reverb leakage from other instruments because mm-hmm. the guy was like, you know, doing it in his sleep, you know, so yeah, don't get me on that bandwagon. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the moral of the story, though, is that you have figured out a way to still integrate everything you love about the analog world, but to have a workflow that matches the modern age and that won't fuck you up. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the great thing about Pro Tools is like, your imagination is now your brick wall, but it's always been that way with mixing. I mean, there's so much you can do. You know, it's it's just it's ludicrous how you can manipulate the audio in, in wacky and creative ways. You know, and it all stays there. Again, you can create like what I do. Um, I work with a Japanese band called One OK Rock. I do a lot of uh, concert DVDs for them where I go over, I'll record the shows, and I bring them back here and mix it. And, and what I do is I cr- I'll create work sessions as I'm mixing, you know, so I'm, I'll be compiling stuff, you know, onto stereo tracks, you know, and, and then I have the ability to create these work sessions that are the physical, you know, raw audio files processed that created these work tracks that if I ever had to go back and rebalance something, I can do that. Now, I just did a, a concert with a 52-piece orchestra, you know, in my mix session, because I need to manage my mix session. In my mix session, I broke it up into sections, you know, so that the violin first chairs, violin second chair, violas, cellos, harp, and brass, you know. So the five stereo tracks of that, you know, are so much easier to deal with than 52 different channels. Of course. Once, yeah. I got, once I got my balance the way that I wanted it, I bounced it, I committed it, and then I saved the session that was just those tracks that made up the comp. And I had to go back three or four times and make tweaks, you know what I mean? But it was so super, super easy, and it didn't clog up my whole mix session. So again, it's like with, with just a little bit of thought, a little bit of ingenuity, you can do all this stuff. And the same with the plugins, like you can... You know, if you're using a shit ton of plugins and you're, you know, a lot of people either freeze them or they commit it. Well, to be honest, the committing is the right thing to do. And then just create to cover your ass, your backup session, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, that has the original raw data. Well, we've been talking for a while and uh, actually have 
a few questions from our listeners. I don't want to take up all of your day, so I'd like to get into some of those if that's cool with you. Yeah, 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 man, bring it on. All right. This one is from Russ Miller. He says, uh, thank you for taking the time to share your experience and knowledge with us. You seem to have your studio and workflow really dialed in, and you've got an incredible discography in your credits. At this point in your career, how important is it for you to use other mixes for reference as opposed to or in combination with just reacting to your feelings and instincts when mixing? And if and when you do reference other material, are you trying to hit the client's target or your own? Good question, Russ. I reference modern music. Obviously, there's a lot of great shit going on out there. And that's how I grow as a mixer, you know. So, but I mean, a lot of times on projects that I'm working on, I'm referencing their rough mix to, to see what they're doing. And again, um, the other cool thing about getting them to send me the sessions with the plugins in, I get to see how you guys are recording, you know, and, and some of the cool tricks. And you are doing some cool tricks, you know, and see some of the cool tricks that you're doing. And then I get to steal them <laughs> and make them my own, you know. But that's what I do. I, I, I you know, that's how you grow as a mixer. Um, so again, you know, I like that. You know, the, the, the one, the only comment that I have about a lot of the modern stuff is, you know, I, I find uh, more times than not that sometimes these mixes are sounding what I call a little overbaked, a little too much emphasis put on trying to get it as loud as possible, you know. Um, yeah, some, sometimes it's, it's just a bit much. I mixed this album last year for a band called The Interrupters. And, uh, you know, they, they had a couple of guys mix one song. And uh, as I was mixing, you know, they hired me to mix the album. And uh, as I was mixing the album, uh, Kevin, the bass player, said to me, he said, yeah, you know, we picked your mix. It was the lowest in volume, but it was the best sounding mix. So remember that there, there usually is another guy at the end of the rainbow called the mastering engineer. So I always leave a little room for him. Um, you know, but again, you know, it's unrealistic to think that all artists now are going to be using a mastering engineer. So obviously I try to get my mixes as loud as possible. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to modern stuff and when I hear something that impresses me, you know, yeah, I might listen to it, try to figure out what they've done, you know, especially like with the Beck stuff. Like I really like Beck uh, and he, he, he knows how to make, he knows how to craft really good records um, and he gets audio, you know, so when I hear stuff like that, you know, I, I may listen to it and dissect it. Um, but never, I never really use it as a reference point. You know, I'm really more likely, like, I like this effect here or this effect there. Mm -hmm. So, thank you, Russ. Okay, this one's from Ruben Sanchez. And when you deal with returning artists or returning clients, do you find the tendency to repeat things you did on older works for them? Or do you try to get it fresh with every single new project? And is this something that you talk in advance about with the artist? No, I don't. Well, one, I don't talk in advance about it. Two, of course, I'm always trying to <laughs> pawn off the old tricks. You know, go, going back to going way back to the tape flange days when I used to do the tape flange. I still love tape flange. You know, and found out. You know, found a way to be able to to, to do the same effect. You know, with plugins. Um, but no, I mean, if a trick works, a trick works. Um, because remember, every song is different. 
And even though that's your, that, that trick is your starting point, it's always going to end up being different. You know, you're going to make it so that it fits the song, you know, or the project that you're working on, you know. But, one, you know, you know there's, I have an arsenal of tricks up my sleeve, but they're always a starting point. I hope that helps you out there, Ruben. Yeah, I mean, what you're using the trick on, everything about it is completely different. So Correct. So how could you Correct. be repeating yourself anyways? Correct. That's like, okay, so it, it's it's almost like, if I wasn't going to use a trick, it would be like, okay, so on this album, we're not going to use any compression. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and you know what they call that? They call that a fucking document. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> you know. This next one is from Dave Holmes. Wait, wait. I, uh, Dave, uh, isn't he the tour manager for Coldplay? <laughs> Dave. Dave. Dave Holmes. It, David Holmes. It's entirely possible. Um, we, have, we, have, <laughs> we have lots of He was always very this. nice to me, but I, I'm certain this is a different Dave Holmes. It very well could be either or. I wouldn't be surprised either way. But he is just wondering, how do you deal with fatigue from mixing? I find it difficult to mix for longer than an hour or so without missing details or feeling like I'm rushing or overcooking. Whoa. That's... Just an hour, wow. Wow. I, you know, I'm a perfectionist, so there's, there's like, yeah, I have my system dialed in and I have my workflow dialed in, so it's just kind of like when I sit down to mix, there, you know, I try to keep the tedious and stuff, you know, the, the tedious stuff that I, I dislike doing, I try to have that in my, the beginning part of my day um, when I have energy so that as my day progresses, and, and, and maybe ear fatigue starts to, to, to set in, um, I'm onto more of the um, creative and, 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 you know, the things that, that kind of get me off. Um, and, and that's what keeps you going because it's, it's weird. Like you do one thing in the mix and everything changes and all of a sudden you're like, fuck yeah, I am the man, you know, and you get that energy back. So that's kind of how my workflow is. So um, if you're getting fatigued after an hour, Oh boy, I, I don't know what to tell you, um, you know. But again, I would, you know, focus my energies on again. Start your day with it when you have the most energy on doing the dirty work. Now, when I do dirty work and, and idiot work, which is the beginning part of my mix, and I let's just make the record clear, I am an idiot. Um, but the beginning part of my day, I'm I'm monitoring at low volumes, you know. So the first listen, you know, in, in my day is I'm listening to the rough mix. And while I'm listening to that rough mix, I'm also putting the cues into to Pro Tools, um, you know, to my specs, even though they might already have, might delete them and do them again. Um, and I do, I would listen to that at a moderate level. And then as when I begin my work, I'm always listening at a, at a, at a, at a low to medium volume. And then when I get into to, to the work where I start to do my equalization, obviously the monitoring level comes up. And then as the basis of the song, you know, start to come together, the meat and potatoes, you know, I'm cranking it. And when I get into the vocals again, I'm listening at a medium to high volume, you know. And then around this time, the, the um, things change that excite me. Um, so that's how I keep the energy. Because again, you do one or two things, you know, and all of a sudden, like you have this goddamn, I am the man. You know, you get the confidence. It's like the light bulb turns on. The light bulb turns on, your confidence level is on stun, you know, and you're like, yeah. And the other thing I do is, you know, take breaks, you know, 
take a couple breaks. You know, I, I you know, I'll, I'll stop, I'll have lunch, you know, I'll sit outside, I'll get away for a minute, and then I'll come back to it. It's amazing what 20 or 30 minute break will do for you. I also wonder if the reason that he's experiencing that is because he's just monitoring way too loud or he's got some messed up situation like he's trying to mix in earbuds and it's really, really loud and he'll sit there for an hour EQing, notching cymbals or something that yeah. will just take the life out of you. Yeah, hard, hard to tell. I mean, look, headphones are for when you're walking, you know, when you're traveling. Airplanes. You know, or for critical listening, you know, so... When I listen in the headphones, I'm listening for technical issues. That's the only time I use my headphones, um, generally, because in the headphones, I can pick out some technical issues um, that I might miss when I'm listening on my monitors. You know, so, you know, the main thing is to trust your monitors. You know, monitor at a level that's not going to blow your brains out, you know, because, again, it's eventually you'll get ear fatigued, so... Good luck with that. All right, this next one is from Marco A. Kitchism, and I'm not sure that's how you pronounce his name because it's spelled K-T-C-H-S-M, so we'll go with that. Uh, how do you approach mixing a live album like Last Tour on Earth by Marilyn Manson? How did you make recordings from different dates sound as one concert experience while still polishing the sound? And especially the live version of Last Day on Earth, which puts the listener right into the arena. One, I don't remember mixing that, that album, so... I can't. <laughs> I, I may or may not have, but I have no memory of mixing a live Manson album. If it sounds good, then yeah, I did it. You know, if, <laughs> if it's questionably sounding, <laughs> and it was somebody else, I can tell you. I mean, I do a lot of look. I really enjoy mixing live albums. Uh, I, again, earlier I spoke of a band called One OK Rock, a Japanese band. I've done six different live tours with them that I've recorded shows and mixed them. And I love it. It's a labor of love. It's a shit ton of work. Um, but it's a labor of love. And what I do is, I, I mean, with the live recording, I focus on being able to control the audio. So in, in a modern live recording, let's call it what it is, there, we're going to be using auto-tune. Back in the day when I did, I did a Sarah McLaughlin. I did two live albums for Sarah McLaughlin. And she would come in and we'd spent a week and we would fix her vocals. Um, you know, because look, it's, that's the thing about live. It's, it's, it's not going to be perfect. But now, we don't, I don't have to do that anymore. Um, so what I do do is when I do modern live albums... I record two shows, and, and again, with One OK Rock, they have been doing it for, for quite, a, quite a while. They've realized that by just taking a split off of front of house and sending it to a computer at front of house is not working for them. So they've hired me, and what I do is I actually, we have a truck. You know, it has a Neve VR in it. You know, we take a split, you know, so before, you know, I could take a mic, direct mic split so I don't I get any EQ or processing from front of house. And I sit in an EVR and, you know, I'll get a nice clean recording. That's my job. And I'll do, I'll run a rough mix. We record two shows and I bring it back to Miami Beach, you know, to my studio. And, and that's when I begin to put it together. And the reason we record two shows is mainly for the vocal. Um, this gives me the opportunity to fix the odd mistake 
or anything that's out of tune. The other thing with the live mixing or mixing a live performance is, is again, we're going to be using auto-tune on the vocal. It's going to happen. So for anybody out there that's done that, you'll understand completely that as soon as you put that on, you get all the aliasing from all the other microphones that aren't auto-tuned because the vocal is usually the loudest thing. It's screaming through every microphone. You know, it's leaking through every microphone and you have to control it. So I have a process in which I spend a shit ton amount of time cleaning and being able to control the leakage. Um, and again, it works out magnificently and uh, I really enjoy doing it. It's a lot of work, but it sure is rewarding. I just did, um, and actually just earlier this week, I finally uh, got the band to sign off, you know, on a concert that I did in October with the orchestra. And literally the comments they sent me, like for a two-hour orchestra concert, I got like three comments, you know, that were so minute. You know, one that was just a, a guitar note that was a mistake, you know, another in the vocal note that I missed, you know, like just, you know, to, to get... Only three minor comments on a two-hour show. That's a dream. Is, is pretty, it's a dream. It, it's an absolute dream. But again, it's because I put the effort in to making it sound amazing. And again, you know, by controlling the ambience. So again, when the drummer's not playing like I go through, when the drummer's not playing, those microphones are muted, you know, uh, on the bass guitar, you know, same thing, even though I'm only using a DI, but... You know, I'm cleaning out all the finger noise when he's moving his hand up and down the strings. Same with the guitar player. All that type of stuff. All those little things, you know, when you start adding spank to it, become big things. Um, and, and when you have just nice, clean, just audio, then you can just pummel the shit out of it and make it sound amazing. Um, so, yeah, good times. But, yeah, I don't remember. I may have mixed the Manson Live album, but to be honest, I don't remember. But, you know... Manson, the Mechanical Animals album I did, is to this day one of my favorite albums. That's a great uh, record. Yeah, that I mixed. It's, it's the, the, it was such a great experience working with Manson. I'm just waiting for that sound to, to disappear. We'll take that again. It was such a great experience working with Manson. He's, he's very um, articulate, and I really, really enjoyed um, again, enjoyed my time working with him. And just for the record, I am just looked on your wiki. You did mix <laughs> Last Tour on Earth. Oh, so I have no memory of it. I'll tell you what year. I mean, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Ninety nine. So wow, been a while. Wow. It was a while ago. It was a while ago. I have no memory of it. So one thing, one thing that I've learned about live recordings: as long as they're done on the same tour with the same gear, it doesn't matter the venue. So in other words, if I took, if on that particular album, let's just say, um, you know, the, the song's very, like uh, as the song, as it goes through the set list, it goes from, from a different venue to venue to venue to venue. And this cat was complimenting me how I got him to sound the same. That's not that difficult. Um, because again, generally the mics don't move. Remember, we're taking a split off of what front of house is using and front of house is pretty good about setting things up exactly the same every night. So I did, again, with the 1OK Rock that I just did, I did concerts in April at Tokyo Dome and in October in Osaka. And they were using the same rig. Even though the Osaka show was an orchestra show and the Tokyo Dome was not, it was the same stage gear. As my starting point for Osaka, I used the EQ from the Tokyo Dome show 
and it matched up pretty close with just a couple of tweaks. So it's not that difficult, but there you go. <laughs> Thank you for that bit of information. Um, and I really nailed that Manson album. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I didn't even deserve, know I mixed it. Deserve the it. Grammy for that one. <laughs> I didn't even know I mixed it. So last question, because uh, like I said, I don't want to take up the rest of your day. I'd, this one's on a slightly different topic, but I think it's a good one. Uh, it's from John Maceo, and he says, Tom LG, you've been in the industry a very long time, maintained an extremely successful... Wait, wait, I, th- I think he just called me old. <laughs> I am old, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead, you can start again. <laughs> How about this? Tom Lord Algae, you know what the fuck you're doing, uh, and you're extremely successful and influential. Sound better? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you believe are the... Boy, this guy doesn't know shit. No, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, go no, no, I will finish this one. So uh, what do you believe are the biggest distractions you see that stop interns and assistants and upcoming mixers from really coming into their own to make this a lifetime career? Opening their fucking mouths. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, an assistant, when I worked at South Beach Studios, I had the best assistant in the world. The guy was actually 10 years older than me. He loved what he was doing. And he was the perfect assistant because he knew his role. He came in, he did his job, he was friendly with the clients, but he always kept his opinion to himself. He watched my back. In other words, he would catch me if I made a mistake or something, but he wasn't trying to take my job. And he, he had the ability to do the job. So the main thing with an assistant is shut the fuck up. Always be aware of what's going on in the control room so that you can, you know, so that you're in the loop, so that you know what's going on. Because when we're in battle in the recording and we're barking shit out, you need to know what we're talking about. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by watching what we're doing and being aware of your surroundings and what's going on. The other thing is to be, to be technically and have the ability to do these things. So be proficient in Pro Tools, be proficient in Logic, you know, whatever your DAW is. You know, to be quite honest, you're going to have to be proficient in both. You know, Logic is great, but Pro Tools is the reason why it has the word pro in it. You know, I use Pro Tools because that just happened to be the program that I use. Um, You know, I do have Logic. I have a bit of knowledge in running it. You know, I just find that Pro Tools is a bit easier. So be a whiz on it. Be quick. And then the other thing is be fun to be around. You know, and, and it doesn't matter how your day is going. Your day is going fucking great. You know, I don't care if you just got kicked out of your house, your girlfriend broke up with you, or your boyfriend broke up with you, whatever, your dog died. It doesn't matter, man. We're making music, and it's all about the vibe. If you're cool to be around, and you buy a round of drinks, you know, that goes a long way. You know, one of the first things you said in that answer was, um, and you didn't feel like he was trying to take your job. I think that loyalty is also so key, so yeah. key. Yeah, it, it is. You know, look, go ahead, man. Try and take my job. Good luck with that. You know, but you know, eventually, I know I, I, I've worked with enough assistants throughout my career that, that they move on in their life. Hopefully, you know, they were able to gain you know uh, knowledge from the time they spent working with me. But for God's sake, man, don't be so fucking blatant to do it in front of me. When I worked at South Beach Studios, the interns always asked me similar questions. 
And I just told him, man, be proficient, know how to run the stuff, be invisible, you know, and eventually clients will see your worth, you know, and some of the, you know, one or two of the interns that used to work in Studio B with Pharrell ended up, you know, becoming engineers, you know, and touring with Pharrell because again, they, they were proficient, they knew how to carry themselves, you know, and they were in the right place at the right time. You know, you have to be patient, you know, you got to pay your dues. No matter what, you always have to pay your dues. It's a, that is, really is another thing that I tell people all the time, which is you really need to be patient. This It could take 10 years, it could take 15, it could take two years, you never know. It may never happen. That too. The, the, you know, first and foremost, you know, you got to be in it for the, for the main reason, the love of music, you know, because you choose this as a career, you know, you're going to be listening to music. You got to love it from minute one of every day. Every day. And, uh, you know, I have an SSL in my house and I, I come up here sometimes at three or four in the morning and I just go, fuck, this is just the most amazing thing, you know, to have this. You know, w when I'm feeling creative, I can just power up my console and get that creative energy out, you know. And uh, it's awesome. Like I said, you know, recently in my downtime, when I have downtime, you know, I go through and I remix my old catalog. Um, and I do that for demonstration purposes. So, for an example, I did a modern plug-in mix of I Don't Like the Drugs, But the Drugs Like Me by Marilyn Manson. And it was so much fun to readdress that song and do it with plugins. And I wanted to see how, you know, one, how my mixing style has changed, and two, how close I could get it to sound with the original mix that I did using all analog outboard gear. And it sounds fucking awesome. And I was shocked at how close it sounds to the one that I did 20 years ago. I bet it does sound crazy. Yeah, and I mean, these are things for your listeners, any of them that come to NAM, you know, or AES show, you know, um, they'll usually be in for a treat. Uh, you know, if I'm doing a mix with the master seminar there, you know, where I'll pull up. You know, I try to pull up one or two of those gems in the, usually in the hour or the two hours that uh, that mix with the masters uh, gives me for it. It's always a good time. And again, the reason that I do it is, is I, want, I want the listeners, I want, I, I want the other engineers that are out there, the guys that are mixing on their laptops, you know, I want them to get the confidence to know it's not the gear, it's your ear. I have the same gear. This is all done in plugins. And then when they see the plugins that I've used, they're it's the shocked. same ones they own. And yeah, not only it's the ones that they ignore. Okay, so like my go-to plugins, you know, what's my go-to compressor? The Bomb Factory Seventy Six. That's like came out with Pro Tools One. You know what I mean? There's something about that their version of that Eleven Seventy Six that sounds great, which I really love. You know, one of my go-to equalizers. It's the avid version of the Focusrite. You know, it's red, it's old, you know, it's been there since day one. And I just find it sounds good, easy to operate. You know, I use the Waves, you know, obviously the CLA Mix Hub, which is a new one, which is awesome. Um, but I also use the old 4000 Channel Strip, you know, which is great. These are my go-to starting points. So mainly it's like find the ones that are easy for you to operate that, that you can get the sound very quickly, you know, and then take it from there. This way you're not, you know, like 
and it needs to be effortless, you know. And then when you're feeling experimental, you know, you start to dig into all these other things like the, you know, the UA audio stuff, you know, or the, the uh, you know, plugin alliances is coming out with shit ton of great plugins, you know, and obviously the fab filter and, and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the arouser, which is the, the emulation of the distressor. You know, all those things are great. But remember, like, you know, in my opinion, you know, they sound close to what they're emulated from, but none of them sound exact. And again, they do, they react differently. So, which means they're a whole nother, it opens up a whole nother creative door. So, yeah. And keyword being different, not better or worse, I think. No, not that. Look, you know, what am I going to do? Sit here and tell you that, all, you know, my hundreds of thousands of dollars of outboard gear, you know, is, is all worthless? No. I mean, look, I have it because. If you walked into my studio and you just saw a console and a Pro Tools rig, you'd laugh at me. You know what I mean? Trust me. Every once in a while, I got to plug in that 1073. You know, I got to plug in that 33609, you know, or the LA3A. Every once in a while, I'm using those things, you know, but I found for me, I love, you know, being able to just use all the plugins. You know, it's, it's not the gear, it's your ear, it's how you're using it. You know, so again, you all have the gear, you know, don't get so hung up, you know, on, on having all this stuff. You know, I, I often tell my students, here's what you do. Take all your plugins and put them in the unused folder and then just pull in like two EQs, two compressors, two delays, two reverbs and two specialty effects and master those. Okay. You know, I can get my same mixes just using the basic Avid plugins that come with Pro Tools. You know, to be honest, I mean, I can do it with any plugin, any fucking plugin. And any DAW you use has perfectly good stock plugins. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, when you get into some of the specialty ones, they, they, some of them are easier to operate than others. So again, it's really about what you can master quickly, what you're comfortable operating which plugins give you the desired sound quickly. You know, that's what I would be focusing, focusing on. So really, what you can do your best work on, not what has the best marketing. Correct. Correct. Because, yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to not say what I was going <laughs> to Hey, Mar I love marketing. But really, look, they're all awesome. I have everything. You know what I mean? I have to, I have to be able to open up sessions. I mean, and I have some really oddball plugins, you know, because some sessions I get have some weird plugins in them, but it allows, you know, it gives, you know, yeah, I got a leg up because I can see what all you guys are doing when you send me the sessions. Some of you are doing really cool shit. You know, you're there, man. Um, but again, it's, you know, I have to, as a mixing engineer, I have to have all these plugins to be able to open the sessions, you know, but Anybody who knows me and, and has seen any of the videos out there, you know, the either mix with the master stuff or some of the stuff that's up on YouTube sees it like, you know, how come he's always using this, these same plugins? There's a reason for that. You know, they're easy to use and they work and they sound great. You know, it's, and again, I get the desired sound quickly. So if you were airdropped on an island with Pro Tools and uh, those plugins, you'd be a-okay. Absolutely. Yeah. If I was airdropped on an island with Pro Tools, I would get off that fucking <laughs> island. <laughs> Sounds like a shitty island. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, it's, 
you know, I, I keep saying the same thing. It's not the gear, it's your ear, you know? So yeah, be the master of your rig, you know? So project management, session management, navigation, you know what I mean? If you can't navigate the session, you can't mix it, you know, be aware of the level you're sending into your master fader. You know what I mean? You'd be surprised how many times crappy mixes sound bad because they're just overdriving their master just fader. Just gain stages to shit. Yeah. So set yourself up for success. You know, one of the ways that I set myself up for success is I run all my faders and Pro Tools at zero and I allow my plugins to do the, fa to, to, to do the work level-wise, okay? And then this way, if I need to do moves, I always, or if I bump something, I always know, oh, well, that was set at zero. So in other words, I put a plugin in and I, I use the plugin. Because remember, plugins have faders, they have outputs. I let the plugin do the gain. You know, the final plugin does the gain that levels it into the mix. This gives you 12 dB of headroom up and infinity dB of headroom down. But generally speaking, anybody, everybody only just wants to turn it up. <laughs> Very true. You know, you know, so again, and then this way, if you're like, oh shit, you know, I'm hitting, when you're at the end of your mix and you realize that you're, you're, you're master fader, you're clipping your master fader, you can just take all your faders and bring them down, you know, if you needed to, but whatever. I mean, I do that because again, I've been bit by nudging a fader and then going, God, was that at 12.3 or 13.7? Oh, I don't man. remember, you, you know, so <laughs> I, I set myself up for success. That's all. The, so basically you don't mix yourself into corners. That's what it sounds like. Correct. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly keeping an eye, you know, first of all, when I do mix in the mixes in the box, when I do do mixes in the box, I'm constantly checking what's happening with my master fader to make sure that I'm not pummeling you know, that, 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 that with, with level. Awesome. Well, Tom Lord Algae, I think this is a good place to stop. We've kind of come full circle back to the uh, love of music, which is what we started with. Yeah, man. <laughs> thank I want to thank you for yeah. taking the time. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome talking to you. Everybody out there, remember one thing. If you're going to crank it, you better spank it. <laughs> This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast has been brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago. With one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand, and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications. Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to t-funk.com. If you like the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, make sure you leave us a review, subscribe, and send us a message if you want to get in touch.